Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, everybody. Welcome into the podcast. We just really quick want to remind you that at the end of every episode, we give a call-in number that you can call and give us feedback. We'll play a voicemail on air, and we're going to throw over to a voicemail here in a second uh, from our friend Brian in Kansas City. Kansas City is a great place. I've driven through there a few times. They have a phenomenal coffee shop called Messenger Coffee. It's like three stories. You can see the roastery. It's like right there on the main. I think it's on the second floor. Okay. But then they also have a rooftop that you can go outside and like chill and drink your coffee on the roof. Cool. It's literally one of the coolest spots in Kansas City. Brian, if you haven't been there... Messenger Coffee. Messenger Coffee. So Kansas City is home to Messenger Coffee and our friend Brian. Let's take a listen to what Brian has to say. Hey guys, this is Brian from Kansas City. Uh, I just finished your 500 Days of Summer episode and I just kind of wanted to say a quick couple of things. Number one, I thought that that was probably your guys' best episode. Definitely one of your best episodes. I really enjoyed how quickly you guys kind of got into the analysis and not only how quickly you got into it, but how detailed it was. You talked about the filmmaking, but also uh, the larger scale themes inside of the film. And I thought a lot of them were dead on. A lot of them were just great. So I really enjoyed that episode. The other thing, just quick thing I wanted to mention about that episode is Bob, you mentioned like how uh, that role was so different from Zoe Deschanel's other work. Uh, I don't know if you have, but I would recommend seeing some of her earlier work around that time, because while it's definitely different than her new girl character and things of that sort, uh, if you compare it to her work in films like All the Real Girls uh, and The Good Life, uh, it's actually very, very similar, because she really plays this kind of dark and hurt character who hides these secrets uh, very well. It's one of the, it's why I think she's actually an underrated actress. Um, so I just kind of wanted to throw that out there. Really enjoying the podcast, guys, and I thought that episode was amazing. So that was Brian from Kansas City. Brad, I really, really appreciated that feedback. I mean, he seems to know what he's talking about when it comes to Zoe Deschanel. So I didn't say that in the 500 Days of Summer episode. I don't really care for her that much. I don't think she has much depth. I don't think she's that interesting. Mm. And if I have to really break down why I hate her so much... Straight across bangs are literally the worst things on the planet. Right. I hate her hair so much. Okay. So if you want to call and tell Brad off, you can do that at our call-in line. We love to interact with you guys. We love to play voicemails on the air. Brad, where can they find us? 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. And now, let's get to the show. In 1954, director Elia Kazan and star Marlon Brando gave the world a heartfelt portrait of one man's journey from corruption to redemption. In 2019, the Jack Daniels Company gives us an 80-proof whiskey that they call Double Mellowed. The film is on the waterfront. The whiskey is Gentleman Jack. And we'll review them both. This is The The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome. 
Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week we are looking at the 1954 film On the Waterfront. But Bob, no good films were made back in the 1950s. I know, right? You know, it's crazy. We keep bringing up these movies that are having some sort of anniversary, and it's not like this is a major one, but we're at 65 years this year for On the Waterfront. I just like I, it when we get fives and tens. It's really nice. Okay, you know? I, was, I was about to say, we could just every week be like, this is the 27th and a half anniversary. Major milestone. We should blow kazoos and stuff, yeah. you know? Wah, wah, wah. Right, right. So 65 years since On the Waterfront came out, this movie stars Marlon Brando, who was at the height of his powers. Uh, he had been coming off of 1951. He did Streetcar Named Desire. Stella! Yeah, nominated for Best Actor, did not win that year, but was the toast of Hollywood. And this is the movie where he finally broke through and won his Oscar. This movie won eight Oscars. It was the it was the movie of 1954. Eight Oscars. You want to take a guess at any of them? Uh, best Actor? Yep. Did Hollywood care about women back then? Best Actress? <laughs> yes. It did not win Best, it won best Supporting Actress for okay. Eva Marie Saint. Yep. Okay. Best Original Story? I don't know if it was a best screenplay. It was actually adapted from a, a series oh. of newspaper articles that won the Pulitzer. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Okay. Um, best director. Best director. Uh, you're missing, best the, you're missing c- the big one. Cinematography. That, it won that. Okay. Best picture. Best picture. And is, then it also is won. A, is that a big one? I think so. Okay. Yeah. And then it also won Best Art Direction and Best Editing. It was nominated for an additional four. It was nominated for Best Score, which I'm shocked it didn't win. Yeah. And then it was nominated three times for Supporting Actor. There were three people in this movie that all went up against each other. Lee and J. They, Cobb. Lee J. Cobb. Carl Malden as the priest in the movie. Oh, dude. And then Rod Steiger as his brother, Charlie. They were all nominated for Best Supporting Actor. So I was thinking in my head that the brother would be nominated, and I, I kind of disagree with that. The really? priest, though, was so good. I can't wait to talk about this. Yeah. Uh, I'm on Team Charlie, and you're on Team Priest. Yeah. All right, so let's get into talking about this movie, because I'm sure a lot of people have not seen this movie. You know, we what I've loved about our podcast so far is that we have been going back over some classic movies that many people have seen, but a lot of our listeners are finding and discovering these movies for the first time. Oh, for sure. I have people who tell me that they enjoy watching the movies because we've talked about them, and they, they get to look for certain things in the movie that we've kind of pointed out, Yeah, and, and it, it enhances the viewing of the movie. I, I guess I'm being really prideful right now. I just kind of realized. <laughs> we make movies better. That's <laughs> our slogan. <laughs> Film and Whiskey Podcast. We make movies better. That's right. So... One of the things I love doing with our podcast is that we have a segment called Brad Explains. But first of all, Brad, had you even seen this movie before this viewing? I had never even heard of the movie. Really? Yeah. We're talking about a movie that is ranked in the top 20, I think, on the American Film Institute's 100 Best Movies of All Time. Really? It's it's close to that. If it's not top 20, it's definitely close. This is a, I mean, this is a landmark classic movie. So I'm surprised you hadn't heard of it. But this was your first viewing. Right. So can you walk us through the plot of the movie On the Waterfront? Brad explains. So honestly, for me, I felt like it was a formulaic mobster movie. And I don't say that in a bad way, because in my mind, this was like, if you ever say that a movie's formulaic, but then you look back and you realize, oh, this is the first movie ever to do that, and it set the formula... You have to ignore the part that you've seen it before and, and recognize the fact that it created something so good that people wanted to, you know, imitate it. And in my mind, that's how I would describe On the Waterfront. It's your classic movie about mobsters oppressing the common man 
and somebody who's in the mob kind of gaining a conscience and opposing the mob and bringing them to justice. Right. And in the context of this movie, you know, the mob are the people that control the unions. And we're right. talking about dock workers now. So they're, they're controlling commerce and what's coming in and what's going out. And, you know, they're obviously opposed to, to the workers really uniting because they run the union. Right. And so by running the union, they run everything. And they enforce, you know, they enforce things by throwing guys off roofs. <laughs> and that's to get to get into the more more explaining of the movie. Yeah. The movie is centered around a character named Terry Malloy, who's played by Marlon Brando. And he is he's not essentially a deep part of the mob. His brother is like the right hand man of a mobster. And at the start of the movie, you see him calling up to a friend in an apartment and being like, hey, man, come on out so that I can talk to you. And then his friends, who are mobsters, are supposed to just rough the guy up. Well, they throw the guy off the roof because it turns out the guy was going to testify against them in court and bring them to justice. And so the entire movie is about Terry, Marlon Brando, you know, reconciling the fact that his brother is in the mob. He's kind of a part of the mob, and, and he needs to figure out what's what is what's right, what's yeah. wrong. Yeah. How, how do I deal with the fact that my family is in the mob, but they're doing terrible things and they're killing my friends and they're oppressing the dock workers? And how can I become a better person? I think it's a great explanation, you know. And and Marlon Brando's character Terry, from the very beginning, he's presented as a dumb guy. Right. I mean, the way that everyone treats him is you used to be a professional boxer. You know, you you basically worked for us. We made you take dives and now you're working on the docks with us. We're going to set you up with a cushy job so that you never have to work as long as you keep your mouth shut. And what I love about Brando is that he does play Terry as a guy that has a, you know, a limited intellect. Right. right. Like he's not a smart guy, but he's a guy that has a conscience and because of the way he's treated by everyone else in this sort of mob mentality, he still has a heart and he still has a conscience. And I, I love that he plays it almost like a little kid in a way that he's just very innocent, you know, um, not a complicated person. So what did you think of Brando's performance in this movie? I really loved it. I think that he gave you a perfect insight into what a a common person has to go through in just dealing with everyday life. And granted, not many of us have to deal with everyday life of mobsters. But in the end, Brando is just, he's a normal person that's dealing with normal problems. And he likes a girl and he wants to win the girl over. And he wants to, but he also wants to make his family happy and his brother. And and he's dealing with these issues and and they escalate to the point where he has to make deep moral decisions about the kind of person he's going to be. Yeah. And he portrays that perfectly. Absolutely. All right, so Brad, I feel like I'm going to go ahead and spoil a little bit or tip my hand here of what I think about this movie. I grew up hearing that this movie was one of the best movies of all time. I grew up knowing its reputation. I grew up knowing what the, you know, I could have been a contender line as as one of the most famous quotes in history. And I loved this movie, but I think it's because I was told to love it. And on this watch, it's a good movie, but I think it's a good movie because of Brando and some some good supporting performances, but not much else. Like, I'm really shocked at how bad the script for this movie was in certain parts. Yeah, and that's, and that's why for me, I, I used the word formulaic at the start. Nothing about this script stood out for me. Every no. single scene, 
it, it made sense in the in the idea that like yeah obviously this is what what's going to happen next. There was no surprise to the movie. No. There was no there was nothing that like kept me deeply involved with the movie other than Brando's performance and honestly I would say the priest's performance. Yeah. All right, so let's start with the acting. Okay. Because I think that there are good and bad things in the acting. Yeah. And Brando's good, obviously. I think Rod Steiger as his brother Charlie is freaking phenomenal. Yeah. And the scene that everyone remembers is the scene in the taxi cab where Brando does I could have been a contender. And they did that scene time and time and time again on the day. And I don't feel like Rod Steiger gets the credit for going toe-to-toe with Brando in that scene. That skunk, we got you for the manager. He brought you along too fast. It wasn't him, Charlie. It was you. You remember that night in the garden? You came down my dressing room and said, Kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. You remember that? This ain't your night. My night? I could have taken Wilson apart. So what happens? He gets the title shot outdoors in a ballpark, and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. You was my brother, Charlie. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit so I wouldn't have to take them dives for the short-end money. Well, I had some bets down for you. You saw some money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Let's face it. It was you, Charlie. What I love about that scene is that you finally get the layers peeled back on their relationship with each other. The whole movie, you know, Brando's just been told, you work for us, keep your mouth shut, you're dumb, you're a washed up boxer. And you finally see the emotion come out in this scene where he tells his brother, it wasn't the manager you gave me that messed me up. It was you. You basically ruined my life. I could have been this great boxer if you wouldn't have made me take dives. And you're my brother and you should have looked out for me. And to see the way Rod Steiger reacts to that, it like that scene is just such an emotional gut punch. So, Brad, what did you think of Steiger in this movie? You know, I'm going to be honest with you. I... When you said that Steiger was up for Best Supporting Actor, I didn't see it. Other than that one scene with the taxi cab, I barely noticed him in the movie. Interesting. I Like, the whole movie, he was just kind of a stooge that stood by Lee J. Cobb, who I thought turned in a brilliant performance. Uh-huh. And I, I struggled to even notice that he was his brother, let alone a main character in the movie. That's so interesting to me, because I, I almost have the complete opposite reaction, which is... It takes a lot for a person of Rod Steiger's caliber. And I don't know if you've seen any other movies that he's been in, but he had a really famous movie career. And in some of his movies, he played like the Lee J. Cobb, like he, where he was the guy that shouted. And for him to be able to blend into the background and to just be the guy that was a yes man. Right. You saw how spineless he was. And then that scene with Brando is what sets him up as a character to have an arc and to finally say, you know what? No, enough's enough. This is my brother, and I am going to stand up for him. And I think, honestly, he was probably the most well-developed character in the whole movie. Yeah, I, I don't know if I could disagree with that. I, it's just hard to see a character arc yeah. when he's invisible for the first three quarters of the movie. I get that. And I feel like in this movie, Lee J. Cobb, I have almost the opposite take on him as well. You know, we talked about Lee J. Cobb when he was in in our 12 Angry Men episode. And 
what I loved about him in that movie was that they gave him like the peaks of screaming and yelling and being the angry guy, but also like the really emotional breaking down, crumpled up man moments. And in this movie, I think all he does is just yell at people. And there's really no, it doesn't take a lot of range to do what he did in this movie. Yeah, and but I would also say that certain characters don't necessarily need range. They just need to do what they yeah. are called to do well. That's fair. And so I, I really loved Lee J. Cobb setting himself up as the wall that people need to bounce off of in this movie. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, he's the fence that pushes other characters to change sure. and to grow and do things, and I think he does that brilliantly. Yep. And, I, and I'll totally agree. He plays the exact same character in 12 Angry Men that he does in On the Waterfront, but in on the on the waterfront, he doesn't have the quiet moments. Yeah, for sure. And I and I think you probably could have given him one or two of those, where maybe at the very end of the movie you see him pondering something about like maybe what I was doing wasn't good and right, and maybe I was just being selfish. But at the same time, I probably get the impression that he doesn't care. He probably knew that the whole time. So that leaves us with the third person nominated for supporting actor, who is Carl Malden, who played the priest. Now, I think we might be split on The Priest a little bit, too, and it's not because of Carl Malden. I think he does a great job, but I think his character is just so, for lack of a better word, he just annoys me. Really? I mean, like... I could understand if you'd use the phrase one-dimensional. Yeah. But I I liked that one-dimension, man. For me, it's just that the lines they give him to read, they're just not realistic, Okay. You know, he's like, we got to stand up against these guys and we're not going to back down until we do. And then there's all these scenes of him standing on a box on a a pile of crates and like pointing at the mobster and his literal soapbox. Yeah, exactly. And I think that it's just a little bit too much. It's a little too on the nose for me. You want to know what's wrong with our waterfront? It's the love of a lousy buck. It's making love of a buck, the cushy job, more important than the love of man. It's forgetting that every fella down here is your brother in Christ. But remember, Christ is always with you. Christ is in the shape up, he's in the hatch, he's in the unit. He's kneeling right here beside Dugan. And he's staying with all of you. If you do it to the least of mine, you do it to me. And what they did to Joey and what they did to Dugan, they're doing to you. And you, you, all of you. And only you, only you with God's help have the power to knock him out for good. I like what they wanted to do with that character, but I feel like they really could have used like some somebody to rewrite his dialogue a little bit. Yeah, I could see that for him. I think one of the things I love about his character, though, is that he represents something that I, I feel like we've lost touch with in the last 30 or 40 years, which is the idea of a religious figure in a town fighting for the people of that town. Right. And and I feel like we've we've so separated religion and common life of just the normal lives that people live that you don't get that idea that that somebody religious whether it's a priest or a pastor or you know whatever religion you follow being so involved in your life that they're fighting for your welfare right. and fighting for your life so that you have a better life and that and and I think in certain ways he represents religion and, you know, spirituality at its best. And I do love that as the priest, he puts himself in a position where he puts his money where his mouth is, you know, for lack of a better term, because the people don't trust him. You know, they're like, we've seen we've seen priests come and go. And he's like, no, you don't understand. Like, I'm in this till the end. I think he says the words right down the line. Like, I'm in this with you right down the line. And they 
they the people that work on the docks say, listen, if you want to take it to John Friendly, the mobster that owns these docks, you have to understand that your life is at stake because they're not going to discriminate just because you're a guy with a collar. And to see a person in that position set aside the place of, I mean, I guess privilege would be a good word of, of being able to just stay in the church and close the doors and not worry about what's going on on the docks and put himself in harm's way. He is a fantastic advocate for those people. Yeah, and and I think that's what I love most about him. I would agree that his lines are a little bit pedantic and and obvious yeah. in certain ways, but I think it's what he stands for, the idea of, you know, the Catholic Church standing up on behalf of those who are oppressed, that there's something beautiful about that and something that I I wish we saw more of in the real world. Yeah. Well, Brad, this brings us around to the last remaining major person in the movie. And this is one of my major gripes with the film. So I'm just going to rant for a little bit about have at it about Ava Marie Saint. Now, her character in the movie is that she is the sister of the guy that gets killed in the very first scene that Brad was talking about, the guy that gets thrown off the roof. His name's Joey Doyle. And the first time we see her is in the immediate aftermath of her brother splatting against the concrete. And she runs up to him. And there's somehow immediately police there. There's a priest there. Her dad is there. And no one in that scene acts realistically in any way. Like, he just died, and the dad's like, well, I told him he shouldn't have messed with the mob. There's no grieving. And then she's just kind of going, who killed my brother? And it that whole scene plays in such an unrealistic way. And I know what they're trying to do as filmmakers, which is to say, like, this happens every day on the docks. They're always throwing people off the roof, but there's something about the way they set the tone for the movie, which is I can't emotionally connect to these people at all. And I feel like Ava Marie Saint's character takes the brunt of that for where the script falls short, because throughout the movie, we don't really learn much about her character, and she's just used as a plot device to help Marlon Brando's character become a better person. The, the movie takes, I know I'm ranting here, but like the movie takes place over the course of like three days, four days. And if you follow the way the movie is set up, the day after her brother dies, she's at this meeting at the priest's church where they're trying to like unionize. She's not grieving for her brother at all. We never see her brother have a funeral. When is that guy getting buried? Like I, the dad, her dad goes to the docks to work the next day and is like, well, what am else? What else am I going to do? This movie rushes things so much. And then the mob comes in and breaks up that church meeting. And then she's just out on the playground with Marlon Brando's character falling in love. And by the next day, they're like making out with each other. And I'm like, they just killed your brother. Her character has absolutely no development. And it's not her fault as an actress. It's just the most poorly written female character I think I've ever seen. Do you feel better? I do feel better. Yeah. No, I I 100% agree with you. I... I, was, I wasn't impressed. No, I wasn't either. And like you said, I don't think it's necessarily because she's a poor actress, because she's not. I don't think she was well-written. No. And when, when you look at the way she interacts with Marlon Brando, when you look at the way she interacts, like you said, with her brother's death, with the way she interacts with the priest, I just, there's no depth to her. No. And, and with a character like Lee J. Cobb, you know, Johnny Friendly, I'm okay with him not having depth. He is there for the characters to bounce off of. To He's there to be a problem for right. them to overcome. 
she's not there for that. She should be growing. She should be changing, and she's not. Yeah. And that's a huge problem with the movie. Definitely. But it's one of the most you know top 20 movies of all time, so don't, don't worry about it. <laughs> don't Bob. worry about the problems yeah. with it, right? Hush up. Now, I will say, I don't think this movie actually takes place in three days. I think we're supposed to understand that the time has passed, like, before Brando's character testifies against the mobsters. But the way that the movie lays it out is almost like this is a direct sequence of events. And I think that's one of the problems with the script. And one of my biggest problems with the script is the ending of the movie. It's an iconic moment to see Marlon Brando walking up, you know, into the, the, the what do you call it? The, the shipyard or yeah, whatever. The dock. Yeah, up the dock. But I don't think that logically the ending of this movie makes any sense. Like it's supposed to leave you on a high note, but a lot of what happens in this movie doesn't make sense from a screenwriting standpoint. And I feel like poor Ava Marie Saint is just thrust into the middle. She's of it. catching the brunt of that. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. The ending of the movie, I didn't really understand what happened. Like I get, they beat him up and then they're like, Oh, he just assumes you can't get up. And if you can get up, then, yeah, so, okay, then all of their power will be gone. This is good. Let's talk about what happens at the end of the movie. So in the course of the film, you know, uh, Brando decides that he's, he's no longer cool with them. Just killing people. And and decides that he's going to testify against them and they get word of it. And so they send Brando's brother to try to talk some sense into him. It doesn't work. They kill Brando's brother. And that's the last straw. He testifies against the mob. They basically make him an outcast. They don't kill him because it would be it would draw too much attention. Right. He goes back to the docks to try to find some work and stand up against them. And they beat him to a pulp. And. What's really weird about the way this movie ends is that he goes and confronts John Friendly in his office there on the waterfront. And all of the workers, all the dock workers are like lined up for like a half mile yeah. <laughs> along the along the edge of the dock watching this transpire. And they don't go help him. They don't go help him. And so at first they're like, well, he's one of their own anyway. Let them take care of themselves, right? But then as soon as he gets beat up, it's like they magically turn yeah. Into, like, support for him. And w what I love is that they beat Marlon Brando so badly that you hear Lee J. Cobb say something like, just let him lie here and take it. And they walk away. And then they cut to all these shots of the dock workers looking sad. But what I love is that they're showing the guys who are so far away from what's actually happening that there's no way they could have heard or understood what was going well, on. he was behind a building. That's what I'm saying. But yeah. they're like, they magically know. And then all of a sudden, they decide somehow that they're going to walk in and basically take care of this shipping order that came in as a way of demonstrating to Lee J. Cobb, you don't give us orders anymore. Right. But the way they decide to do that is by going to Terry, Marlon Brando, and saying, if you walk in, we'll walk in with you. And I just don't understand why that has to be the deal. Right. Why does he have to get up and walk? Why can't you help him? Like, and he has to get up on his own power and walk in. And it's like this, this symbol like, they're trying to make this symbolic gesture of, like, solidarity, but the man can barely walk. He probably has a ton of broken bones. Right. Why are you making him walk into this building? The real sign of solidarity would have been if they did what I thought was going to happen, the cliche thing of, this guy has become one of our own, yes. and we're going to go support him. But instead, they see, like, two guys on the dock... Like looking intimidating, they don't even have guns. I don't think. No, it's like two of and his. And they're heavies. like, they're like, oh, I guess all ninety-seven of us 
can't beat can't these two these guys, guys right. in front of us. I it it made zero sense. That, to me. It makes no sense. And then okay, so the at very end of the movie, Brando gets up, he walks the length of the dock, he goes into like the shipping warehouse or whatever to and, work, and then they're all like, "Yeah!" and they follow him in. And they close the big, like, garage door of the warehouse, and Lee J. Cobb is just outside going like, hey, what are, you, what are you guys doing? You're not listening to me anymore. And the final image you get of the movie is everyone walking in and Lee J. Cobb getting shut out. And again, it's this symbol of, like, workers unite. We can take down the big bad guys if we unionize. But... Again, logically, doesn't Lee J. Cobb still own that building? Right. Like, isn't that? Can he just get his keys and, and walk and walk? <laughs> it? I understand that they're making a symbolic gesture, but at the end of the day, you know, they're making the point that it's not going to be the way it was before. But it's not also not going to change overnight that way. He still owns all of that, and they still work for him. Well, and the big problem for me was, did the actual case where Terry testified mean anything? Because in the end, he's still, I mean, and I get that, you know, Johnny says, they ruined us and we got to go and all this stuff. Yeah. But in the end, they're all still there working on the docks. Right. Lee J. Cobb is still there. What did the testimony actually do? I don't know if it's like an ongoing trial or what, but he's clearly not in prison. Right. So like until that happens, how much power do these workers really have? I struggled so much with the ending. And again, it's one of those like really uplifting movie endings and it works really well if you don't think about it at all. But the second you start to really wonder, like, does this make any sense? It doesn't at all. And I'm really starting to think about this movie that if it wasn't for Brando's performance in this movie and what Brando brings to it as a method actor, that we wouldn't even remember this movie today. That is a bold statement. That's kind of where I'm at with it. And we're going to talk a little bit about the impact this movie has had after we get to our whiskey for the day. So, Brad, what do you say we try some Gentleman Jack? Mm, Yes, sir, my fellow gentleman here. Mm. All right, so today we are trying Gentleman Jack. Now, this is a whiskey from Jack Daniels. It is 80 proof. What they say makes it different from regular Jack Daniels is that We know Tennessee whiskey is charcoal filtered, um, but apparently they filter it before it goes in the barrel and again before it goes into the bottle. And they say that this double mellows it. Now, I don't know if it double mellows it or if they're just taking good stuff out of it that would give it more flavor. And I guess we're going to find out. Brad, have you had Gentleman Jack before? I haven't. And honestly, it's been years since I had Jack Daniels. Me too. So I'm really interested to try this. So this is like a step up from regular Jack Daniels. It costs a lot more. Do you have any idea what you paid for this? Uh, I bought a pint of it. And so I think I spent around 20 or $25 on a pint. In the state of Ohio, a fifth of Gentleman Jack is going to cost you 30 bucks. Okay, so this is in that mid-tier. Yeah, I mean, regular Jack Daniels is only going to put you back about 20 bucks, so it is significantly more expensive than Jack Daniels, but it's still not going to break the bank to try this out. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I think I paid about $20 for a, a pint of it, so it, it's not a terrible price, and that, no. that'll factor into value. But let's get started on the nose. Bob, what are you picking up as uh, you put this up to your nice little schnoz? Do you remember when we tried the Henry McKenna and I said it smelled like peanut butter? Yeah. This is even more peanut. This is like, it smells like nothing but peanut butter and honey to me. Like if you made a sandwich and just slathered peanut butter on it, it's like overwhelmingly peanut butter and then honey notes. 
I could see that. It, sometimes I think I just realized the reason I struggle with peanut butter on a on a, a spirit, a whiskey, is because the ethanol really hits at that peanut butter. But the more I'm smelling this, to me, it's not coming off as heavy as you're saying. Uh-huh. But I can kind of sense that peanut buttery feel to it. For sure. It definitely has darker notes. You know, maybe I just have peanut butter sandwiches on the brain, too, but I'm almost getting like a banana kind of smell from it, too. All right, Elvis. I'm serious. Peanut butter. Yeah, this is like this would be Elvis's whiskey if he could drink it. Yeah. Peanut butter, banana and honey is what I'm picking up on it. Are you picking up any different notes than I am? Yeah, no, I would agree. It has those sweet notes because all of those things you just said are kind of a sweeter tasting item. All right. So why don't we give it a, a score on nose? What do you think, Brad? Um, you know, I am going to give it a six and a half. I really like the smell. It has a few different notes that hint at complexity. Um, most of them are sweet notes, like you said, but I'm really curious to see how this tastes. Yeah, I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. I really like where this is going as it mellows a little bit in the glass. I pick up a lot of smoke, uh, and not in a, in a sort of charred barrel way, almost in a scotchy smoke kind of way, mm-hmm. uh, which I really like. But with coupled with those notes of peanut butter and banana, I'm going to give it a seven and a half on the nose. Brad's taking a sip. What do you think of the taste on this one? It's nothing like Jack Daniels. Hmm. Good or bad? Decidedly above average. I'm still picking up a ton of peanut butter. I, it's I would really agree. nutty, um, yeah. but it's not sweet at all. Like it tastes, oh, really? it tastes like those more muted. Oh, I don't even know what the word is. If you could take the nuttiness of peanut butter without a lot of that sweetness, I'm just getting kind of a straightforward dark peanut note, and that's it. Yeah, and you're definitely hitting a lot of smoothness on uh-huh. your palate um, that you would get from an 80 proof bourbon. Uh, well, sorry, an 80 proof whiskey. Mm-hmm. So you're definitely the ethanol comes a little bit more forward on the nose than it does on the palate. I'm actually really enjoying the taste of this. It's a good sipping whiskey. Yeah, and and like I said, it's not overwhelmingly sweet. And I think that's the thing when you compare this to an aged bourbon or something where you're just getting tons of corn and you're you're getting like sugary sweet. It's not to say this whiskey is bitter. It's just not bourbon sweet. And that's kind of what I was expecting from the nose. Yeah, and there's something else about it that, like, if we're really honest, Jack Daniels, the regular, is something that just punches you in the throat. Oh, yeah. Like, it is a powerful whiskey. And this, I really like, like, this might sound dumb, but the fact that they called it Gentleman Jack, I would say that's probably one of the best branding they could do for it, because it still has some of the flavors that you get from Jack Daniels, but it's a Gentleman's Jack. It doesn't punch you in the throat. What would you say about the taste? Score-wise, I think I'm going to give the the taste an eight and a half. Wow. I really like this taste. It's smooth. It's nutty. Yeah. It reminds me of an Irish whiskey. It's not going to kick you in the throat. It, yeah. It's really a good whiskey. I was going to give this a five and a half just because it was so unexpected, but it's not bad, and I don't think I should punish it just because it wasn't what I expected. I'm going to give it a six on the taste. Okay. All right, and finish... I'll say that there's not much of a finish within within 20, 30 seconds of swallowing. I don't have any lingering aftertaste at all. It completely vanishes off your palate, which can be a good thing or a bad thing. Certain whiskeys will sit on your palate and sour and and not taste as good. Other whiskeys sit on the palate and just intensify and become more beautiful the longer it's been since you sipped it. And so these ones where the, the taste disappears 
I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I, I would always think it's a bad thing just because I think it's a sign of how much they've watered it down that it doesn't have any lingering punch to it. I really think that a whiskey like this where they have put so much effort into it on the front end deserves to be a little bit higher proof. If not just for like leaving those, you know, peanut and smoke notes on your palate afterwards. And the fact that we're not getting any of that, I don't care for that. So I'm actually, I'm going to give it a four and a half on the finish. I'm going to give it a six on the finish. I would agree with a lot of the things that you said, but I think that I think it's okay because certain times when you water down the whiskey just a little bit, you get certain flavors on the palate that you might be sacrificing some of the finish, but you get more on the taste. Yeah. All right. And then overall balance. You know, I think this is actually a fairly well-balanced whiskey. I do think I was let down at the end by the fact that there's almost no finish on it, especially since the nose was the most complex part of it. I was really expecting, you know, a, a powerful whiskey, like you described Jack Daniels in a way. And this kind of let me down on that end. So I think I'm going to give it a six on balance. Yeah, I'm going to give it a six and a half on balance. I, I think that all the things that you said are true. I just think it did a little bit better in my mouth than it did in your mouth. Well, okay then. <laughs> and then our last category is value. Now, we already said this is $29.99 for a bottle. I don't think that's a bad price, but I also could name you six, seven, eight bottles at that exact price point that I probably like better than this. Yeah, and you. this is a good sipping whiskey. Yeah. So at value, I guess I would probably give it about a seven. I think I'll do the same. I really, really, really liked the nose on this. And then, you know, the overall balance kind of let me down, which means that the value, I think, kind of lets me down a little bit. I wish they hadn't watered this all the way down to 80 proof. Yeah, even if they even if they put this out at an 85 proof or yeah. a 90 proof. I think it would have significantly more character to it. And the thing is, you could still sell this at the same price point if you if you produce it at a 90 proof. <laughs> Especially cuz it's Jack Daniels. Yeah. They make enough money. Yeah, I yeah, I that does disappoint me a little bit. Mm-hmm. You could have made this 90 proof, maybe charged 31 or 2 dollars instead of 30. Right. And it, and it would I think it would be a lot better yeah. of a whiskey. Yeah. I do enjoy sipping it. Uh, but it's just, it's not my favorite. So I'm coming out to a 31 out of 50. Brad, what are you coming out to? A 34 and a half. So that brings us out to a 32.75. You know, we're in that basically a six out of 10 range. It's a pretty good. It's it's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. I Would you recommend it though, Brad? Yes. I think I would too. Yeah. I, I would recommend it. If you're looking for an easy sipper, mm-hmm. th- this is a good whiskey that I would recommend having in your in your shelf. I'm really enjoying just kind of swirling it around and smelling it. Like, to nose this is an enjoyable experience. Yeah. The taste is fine, but then it just evaporates. So, you know, hesitantly, yeah, I I would recommend this, especially if it's on a buddy's shelf. Yep. Ask to try some of it. Yep. If if you're asking me if you should pay $30 for it, probably not. Right. Well, and that's the thing. Is this something that maybe you buy it once and for, like, like me, you buy a pint of it for like 18 to $20 and you drink it and you say, yeah, that was a pretty good whiskey and you never buy it again. Great. Maybe maybe it's something you enjoy a little more than we did and you keep it on your shelf for 30 bucks. Yep. Great. Like, it's a pretty good above average whiskey. Yeah. And that's just kind of where we're at with it. So this has been Gentleman Jack. What do you say we continue sipping on this as we finish our discussion of On the Waterfront? Which is a pretty good above average movie. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) All right. So that was Gentleman Jack. 
We're back to talking about on the waterfront. Now, we've both been venting, and me more so than Brad, about my problems with this movie, because I think that there are just huge structural problems. Can I say something, though, that do you feel like you are more frustrated about the problems in this movie because of how highly touted it is? Yes. And I think that, like, you and I have done a really good job, if I can, you know, toot our own horn here for a minute, on this podcast of... Talking about the good and the bad, but not letting movies off the hook for the bad. And I've gone back to these movies and revisited them with a fresh eye. You know, I've gone back to Casablanca and Casablanca held up. You know, we go back to The Great Escape and for what it is, The Great Escape holds up. I went back to this movie and I was surprised to see it, but it just doesn't hold up for me the way that I thought that it would. Brando gives a great performance, but other than that, I don't know that this movie deserves to be as highly regarded as it is. And Brad, we were even talking just before we hit record about one of your biggest frustrations with the movie. And I I want you to bring that up a little bit because it revolves around one scene that is super problematic in 2019. Yeah. So this is one of those things where I don't want to try to pretend like I'm snobby. And just because I'm from 2019, I'm better or more moral than people from 1952. Let's be really honest and take a look at the scene when Marlon breaks into Eva Marie Saint's home and basically forces her to make out with him. Yeah, he really does force it. I mean, that, first of all, he he breaks down the door. That scene, I was watching it, and I'm like, okay, I understand that you like this girl. And I understand that you think she likes you. That does not excuse breaking down her door and forcing her on, forcing yourself on her. I... Honestly, the biggest analogy for me with that would be Rocky. Have you watched Rocky recently? Uh, No, not recently, no. Dude, there's a scene where he literally breaks down the door and makes out with Adrian. Yeah. And she keeps telling him, don't kiss me, don't kiss me, don't kiss me. And then Sylvester Stallone kisses her. And, like, she falls for him and, and, you know, falls into his embrace. And I think it gives this understanding that if a woman says, don't kiss me... Well, if I just kiss her passionately enough, she'll want to kiss me back. Yeah, she's actually asking you to do it more. right? And and the thing is, I will qualify all this by saying, like, when you're in a relationship with somebody, a genuine consenting relationship, you might know them well enough to know, okay, they might be joking around or this or that. But in these movies, they don't know each other. They are not in a relationship that's consenting. It's literally been a matter of days that he's known her. And he said, like, yeah, I remember seeing you in the neighborhood growing up. You had braces. You were really ugly. Right. And in the course of this movie, it is bad enough what he, just just the level, just the action that he takes of breaking down the door, forcing himself on her. But when you add the emotional impact of what had just come before that in the movie, which is that the priest basically convinces Marlon Brando to reveal to Eva Marie Saint that he was involved in the plot to murder her brother and he confesses that to her and she runs away horrified and then you know he has uh, you know a little bit of a a temper tantrum later in the movie and decides i'm an immature emotionally immature boy and i need coddled so he goes to her house to to have her cuddle him and she doesn't want that and of course she doesn't want that he helped kill her brother and his response to that is no i get to take what i want or i get to take what i need in order to be uh, comfortable and to cope with what I'm going through. Yeah, I struggled so hard with that scene. And there's the part of me that doesn't want to go as far as we're going and be like, you know what? Like, 
it's okay to pursue love and it's okay to pursue a relationship with other people. And sometimes you might do things to pursue a relationship that might not be considered by okay by the common society. And I, I like I understand all of that, but this movie did not portray mm-hmm. that well. Mm-hmm. And and I truly struggled with that scene. And I mentioned this before we went to the whiskey segment, which is honestly, if it wasn't for the presence of Marlon Brando in this movie, would we even remember it? And I think in some ways that's a really bad argument because you can make that argument with any great movie because great movies are made by great actors and great directors. You know, if you had taken, you know, Henry Fonda out of 12 Angry Men and you plugged in Pee Wee Herman, like it's, (laughs) it's it's a different movie, right? And it's a crappy movie. But I honestly think that what's happening here is that Brando is elevating the material to such an extent that when we look back on this movie, we're looking back on the movie for Brando's performance and we're overlook we're overlooking or we're excusing everything else. Yeah, as somebody who had never even heard of On the Waterfront, let alone known that it was so highly regarded, I I mean, I know that we're not there yet. It's a seven movie and like that's probably going to be my final score like like it's it's above average it's a good movie marlon turns in a great performance absolutely but there's major issues with this movie yeah and i like it's just okay now like there's historical context you can add to this movie like Ilya kazan had been brought before the huac hearings the house on american activities committee which were led up by joseph mccarthy to try to weed out communists and when he was on his witch hunt and they went hard after Hollywood, you know, writers and directors, especially some actors. And Ilya Kazan had named names. He had basically ratted out everybody that he knew that was a communist. And this movie is viewed by a lot of critics as his sort of allegory for what he went through, which I also think is really problematic because is he portraying all of his friends that were communists as like mobsters? Is he trying to say that the communists were after him the same way the mob was after Terry? It it makes for a really complicated allegory. And I appreciate that Kazan was working through this script to get out his own emotions about what he had just gone through in front of McCarthy. But I also don't think that just knowing that fact makes this a better or a worse movie in any way. Right. It's it's just an interesting fact that, you know, a tidbit about how the movie was made. Absolutely. And why it was made. So, Brad, you have kind of already hinted that your final score would be a 7 out of 10. I'll just, I'll go ahead and say it. It's a 7 out of 10. Yeah. It's an above average movie. It has some really good performances and not just Marlon Brando. I think that, I think that Lee J. Cobb turns in a great performance. I think that, Car- yeah, I think Carl Molden put, turns in a really good performance. The, the the place where the movie most struggles, I think, is the writing. Yeah, the, for sure. The writing really struggles. It doesn't create compelling characters other than Terry. Yeah. It's a 7 out of 10. And, and that's one of my big things is, like, it won the Oscar for screenwriting. It And it was considered for a long time a really major milestone in, in Hollywood screenwriting. But I think when you look back on it from the standards that we've set for ourselves now, especially... It does not hold up as a great screenplay. The character development just isn't there in a lot of ways. Obviously, Brando grows as a character. I think Charlie grows as a character. I think they wrote some great scenes. But overall, there are these huge structural problems that we have with this movie. It's a lot of peaks and valleys. Yeah, for sure. We, as the Film and Whiskey podcast, know better than like 80 years of cinema, you know, history. So we're better than them. And, <laughs> Absolutely. And we know that this is... We a, make movies better, TM, yeah. right? <laughs> Film and whiskey, we make movies better. Here's what I'll say for my final score. Um, 
I think that this movie has some scenes that are among the best scenes ever filmed. I love the taxi cab scene, obviously. And I think that the scene where Brando finds Charlie dead emotionally is so compelling. It's so good. It's so good. But then the movie just moves right on from that and they don't let us linger there. And you don't really feel the emotional resonance of some of these scenes. And like Brad said, it's peaks and valleys. I do think it's a well-made movie. I do think we should still be watching it in 2019. I do not think it's one of the 2025 best films ever made. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10. And that brings our final average to a 7.5 out of 10. Which is, honestly, out of all the movies we've watched, on the lower end On the lower end, for sure. For sure. But we want to know what you think. So if you love On the Waterfront, if you are a Marlon Brando stan... If you want to write into us, call into us, and and just ream us out for what we've been talking about with Marlon Brando, go ahead and do it. Brad, where can they find us? They can find us on all of the social medias, at Film Whiskey with an E. At Film Whiskey with an E, or you can call our call-in line. What's calling someone? <laughs> right. I don't understand. Can they text instead? Well, well yeah. That's an idea. Give us a call. Leave us a voicemail. Our number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. Next week, we'll be back talking about the 2002 Steven Spielberg hit, Catch Me If You Can. Guys, I'm not going to lie to you. I love that movie. I can't wait to talk about it. I'm super excited to get into it. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time. 